very good things. But Xavier tells me, so this is what we were just discussing, that you were a bit nervous. And I'm curious to know what was it about uh, the, this, this, this whole thing we're doing that made you sort of nervous? Uh, I think it's uh, the idea of being recorded. And I think as someone... I was just talking to Xavier about this. Yeah, I think it's because I believe people's opinions can change. And... Um, you know, as someone who likes to think that they're quite open-minded, the opinions I have as a 23-year-old, you know, they might change in 20 years or so. So, What are you yeah. talking about? Static no? all the way. Stubborn, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were That's talking about, um, what was it, the Panopticon effect? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because even I get very nervous being on camera and, like, just being put on the internet and stuff like that. And I've never, like, that's why it took me so long to actually do something like this and do it freely. But it's something me and Xavier, I think, struggle with that, with it as well. Mm. So, it's, and, and Xavier is just telling me, you you actually, like, studied the Panopticon effect or, or looked into it. So I'm curious to know what's your take on this uh, entire thing and, and how it connects to podcasts and the psychological nervousness uh, that you feel. Okay, so applying the... Bentham's Panopticon theory to podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, if the theory is the concept of self-regulation, um, because you don't know if someone's watching you in the prison, and so you're you're always on edge, then I think we already do that in life because you know you don't know what other people are going to think of you or what they say or um, that sort of thing. So then you're sort of self self-regulating based on the public opinion so yeah do you believe that that must always induce a state of nervousness or anxiety not always um but i think i think it's ingrained in us from such an early age the desire to fit in um you know i was just talking to a friend about i'm starting a new job and just the micro social interactions that come with everyday life i think it's um yeah you do you want to fit in you want to be part of the crowd and it takes a lot of self-confidence in what you're trying to say but also what you believe in to want to confidently stick your neck out i think <laughs> what conclusion did you guys come to don't think we did. We were still exploring the idea. <laughs> yeah, we thought maybe we'll ask you. Yeah, it's a work in progress, I think. Um, but I, I obviously like it's quite an obscure thing to to put yourself out there, like uh, in a sense that like when you're doing a podcast and you're just having a conversation. Because Shashwan and I talk, we we do a lot of devil's advocates, I guess, challenging each other, being like, "Well, why don't we just do this, like have normal conversations, but not record it?" And then like, what is the difference between that and like actually recording it? Like the panopticon effect or like any other, just sort of being aware that you're being recorded and that there may be a chance that it can get released. Like what are the impacts on that? Um, but I think like what, like we're trying to do here is like have the illusion where like the fourth wall isn't broken and try to maintain that conversational flow because like, I, I just context, like, you know how you, me, and Angela, Kate, we do our mm. philosophical, um, our phys philosophical talks. I feel like that state of flow, or like that idea of like having those conversations and still having a lot of subs like substance and a lot of um, intellectual like discourse. I think is like really sought for, mm. and I feel like whether it's put online or it's kept kept um, offline, I think there is some value in just entertaining 
the idea of just uh, discourse and debate and um, rigorous thinking or even not, it doesn't have to be rigorous, but just like intellectually like challenging each other. I think that's kind of like the, the, the underlying purpose for these sort of conversations. But I think there's like a lot of ways we can go. Well, we, I see we're going to say something, Shasha. Yeah. And I mean, it, it goes to this idea of authenticity that we also try to bring to the space, which is like, yes, we mm. want intellectualism, but at the same time with that comes a degree of emotions that we bring into a space, even though we might try to like sound very intellectual and just only logical, there is emotions involved in any human interaction. And so how do we make sure that it's a sort of space that allows people to be free, to feel safe, to be authentic and not allow this like, Oh, well, I don't think this is in our control, but like, how do we mitigate this um, effect of the panopticon that we start facing where we're in this podcast and like, you know, it's being recorded. So then this should that like, could that turn the conversation less meaningful or reduce the amount of authenticity that comes into it uh, or not? So I don't know if you have any ideas on this, but if not, I had another question, which is, despite this panopticon effect of this feeling of nervousness, mm -hmm. uh, you still decided to come and, and, and have this conversation and put yourself out there. So I'm curious to know what motivated you to do this and what brings you here today? Well, for starters, I think I have an inherent interest in these kinds of conversations. As Xavier says, there is sort of a, a desire within a lot of people, I think, to discuss things more broadly and... Um, because, you know, it's very easy to read things on the internet, reading blogs, other people's opinions, but it's not until you engage in like a verbal conversation, I think, that you actually begin to articulate your own. Um, so I think that was the first one. The second one to get over the nervousness, I think, yeah, I think it was just confidence in my own self, I think. Uh, you know, I, I, for context, something that I was thinking about, not only, not only like a sort of panopticon surveillance self-regulation aspect, but I did one of my major essays in my law degree on cancel culture. And cancel culture is all about someone who said something, whether they deliberately meant it or not, it could just have been a flippant remark or something that hadn't been really articulated properly. And it's ended up biting them in the butt big time where you know lynch mob online um seeking to end that person's life essentially um and so i think you know that that ability for whatever content you produce whether it's written or verbal or a tweet can be misinterpreted or um uh taken out of context or whatever the case may be. I think that was something that I was processing. But then I think I had enough confidence that for starters, the audience here is, is quite educated and it, it would be uh, a very um, considered debate that is uh, considerate of others um, and different opinions. But I think as well, I had enough confidence in myself that I wouldn't say anything wild um or who knows i don't know Xavier's giving me a bit of a yeah, list of the I, topics I but go. yeah who knows it could say something crazy but um yeah i think that's sort of what got me over the edge and then also you know i trust xavier so he don't think he'd throw me in the deep end so two two questions based off of that one is that now that you've kind of spoken about the nervousness or kind of put it out there did it make any psychological effect or did it change the way you felt now that you've kind of just put it there? 
I think it's always good to communicate your emotions uh, generally anyway, like whether you're going into a meeting and you're about to present and you say, look, I'm a little bit nervous. I think it, it, it gives people a window into the fact that you're a human. Um, I think as well, like professionally myself, I'd like to think I put on like, you know, a business hat and go into a room and want to ooze confidence and professionalism and um, an air of authority. But at the same time, that isn't really the emotions that I'm feeling or who I am necessarily. So I think being able to say like, I feel nervous or I feel excited or I feel um, apprehensive helps people understand the context of what you're what you're doing and, and why you're feeling that way. So they are more open-minded to hearing what you have to say and also makes you a bit more relatable, I think. I, I also think that it kind of allows, you're creating a space for yourself to uh, experiment and maybe mm-hmm. there's a degree of mistake you can make because you've already put it out there. And so you hey, allow yeah. <laughs> yourself to be more free. And I, I see like some people who do this, for example, Joe Rogan. He, he does this on his podcast while by, by uh, inviting all these intellectuals and talking about great stuff. But at the same time, when he gets accused of stuff, he'll also say, well, I'm just a comedian, guys. Like, don't take me so seriously. At the end of the day, my profession is a comedian. So he kind of discredits himself or mm-hmm. puts it out there. Like he makes, uses vulnerability and just saying whatever it is, the reality of the matter as a way to experiment and, and, uh, have like be a space to change right because you said how we can um, this ca- cancel culture exists because people put something out there which can be misinterpreted in ways and we may not actually believe in it all the time or like as we change our our perceptions of it may change and so how do we create a space that allows change to be more fluid or or this um, or, or one not to be attached with this and be used against Mm. Well, I do want to mention something about Joe Rogan, the fact that you brought that up, because I do agree that it is, like I have just mentioned, it's good to mention how you're feeling and, and, and sort of caveat what you're saying. But at the same time, as soon as you have a quite a considerable platform, you do have a level of responsibility. So I know with someone like Joe Rogan, if he said something that was probably offensive to someone, it's not that he could simply discount it and say, well, I'm a comedian. Um, I think I don't know where the line is, so I don't know if, I, if I'm to preempt your next question, but I don't know where that line is when you can say, I'm still an amateur philosopher or I'm an amateur debater in this politics or whatever. And then when you transition to having a certain level of responsibility, but I don't think you can just simply discount it and throw your hand up and say, well, I'm just a comedian. Um, but to answer your question about where, uh, how to have these conversations freely. And I'd be interested to hear Xavier's opinion on this as well, seeing as though this is what you guys are both facilitating, uh, essentially. Um, But I think in order to have them, you need it to be very uh, non-threatening. Because I think something that puts people's hackles up is as soon as they feel like they're being attacked or their opinion is being attacked or their way of life or their culture or whatever it may be. And so I think the establishment of trust and respect is really, really important from the beginning. Um, and that's why I think things like the internet is always going to fail when it comes to these sorts of discussions because you're hidden behind the screen or a pseudonym. And so you're, you don't have that interpersonal connection. And so therefore, whatever you're saying um, can be misinterpreted and, um, and not have that free discussion. And I think as well, um, 
I try and make myself do this with emails and stuff, you know, with like work emails when people respond with like full stops a lot and it's quite, and you're like, God, this person must hate me. But then it's always about assuming positive intent. I think it's like API is like what people throw around in like corporate but like if you're assuming positive intent in everything that people are trying to say then you're much more likely to be a more positive person and actually listen to what they're saying but as soon as you're you know with me in the email as soon as I'm like oh my god they've overused punctuation or you know maybe because I handed in that thing a little bit late they must already hate me um, but if I'm assuming positive intent and just reading it as a factual document as an email or a political opinion on Twitter then I will be less inclined to be reactive um, and, and feel emotional about it. Um, so, yeah, but I think it would be, would be hard other, uh, to really properly establish a sort of respectful flow of communication. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of overlap between this topic and a podcast we did um, previously with um, our friend Alex. So like context, Kate, we discussed how like there's like in terms of like the education system, there's an issue of not feeling that safe, that safe space where you can actually make mistakes. And then from making mistakes, you can learn. And it's often in like the initial stages of learning, like that embody, the embodying trust and communicating that to other people where able to, once they're comfortable, then they understand that that's where the learning can start happening. Whereas if you're immediately on, like start on the wrong foot which is you crucify people for making mistakes that can often lead to people being isolated or alienated or some other negative emotion um and i think shash would probably have a lot to say with this he completed i mean i won't speak for you Shasha, but you did a course on this thing called experiential learning which is it kind of talks about these these fast these principles of um trust establishing trust before you go through the learning process maybe you can talk about a bit about that Shasha, or maybe any other um, related points yeah, I mean, there's two very, very interesting points, or oh, well, three of them that I want to know more about. But one connection I'd never thought of was trying to create a non-threatening space, but at the same time, that allows one to have this economist mindset, where you said, Kate, uh, you're not kind of like, the emotions aren't taking over, you're able to see things as they are for what they truly are. And that I believe is that sort of economist mindset where you're balanced and not distorted, right? So I never thought a non-threatening space could allow one to have that, but it sounds like somewhere it did allow it. So um, yeah, one of our goals is to create that space. Aside from that, uh, another idea that I found very interesting is how you mentioned being an amateur versus being a professional and how when we put on this professional hat, we, we kind of, um, we feel more responsible and there's this need to think more. And then there's this kind of panopticon effect versus being an amateur and using that as an excuse. So I actually looked into the etymology of amateur and professional. And uh, since it was uh, discussed in uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, and he basically says that the word professional actually comes from the word profess which means to, uh, to, to declare publicly, which is kind of related to the panopticon, which is like you're putting yourself out to the world uh, and kind of declaring that, and that turns it into your professional, right? So now you feel more accountable because there's more eyes on you. Mm. But at the same time, he, the word amateur, I believe, is so uh, misunderstood where it kind of has a sort of negative connotation is that, oh, he's an amateur, he's not good at it. But the word amateur comes from the word uh, amare, or I think it's 
basically to love in Latin and to do something. So an amateur is actually for the love of doing something, whereas professional is to declare it. So I just find it quite interesting as how we distinguish what we love to do and condemn that as something that's amateur or negative versus professional being like really good at it and only then kind of professing it or like seeing it out into the public. Uh, so I'm curious to know how you see this. Like, do you see being an amateur or trying to do something you love, um, something separate as what you profess or do as an occupation or something that you put yourself out there using? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I personally don't uh, have negative connotations towards towards the word amateur. I know objectively, like there are um, the perception of inadequacy or not that good at it. Um, but you know, this podcast is, an, I guess, an amateur philosophical debate, um, and everyone starts off as amateur. I know. Sorry, Xavier, I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. To what extent do I put my, my amateur things as my profession? Um, well, I think, you know, in society, we, we've sort of like built these, this infrastructure around becoming a professional. So whether it's a sports star, you're a professional when you represent the country or the state or you're at the Olympics or whatever. And up until that point, you're still technically an amateur and sort of in, in business as well, you might be really great with numbers um, and trading, but unless you're in investment banking, you're still just an amateur trader. And so really, I think I'm probably, I probably have been a little conditioned to the concept of professionalism. I don't think a lot of what I do, I've made my profession, but is that because I don't think I'm good at it or sorry, apologies for the dog in the background. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think m perhaps it's not because I don't think I'm good at it, but maybe it's just not a, a viable career path in my mind. Like something I'm thinking of right now is I really love pottery, ceramics, and I think that's something that really interests me. Um, but why haven't I made it my profession? Probably a host of other reasons, not because I don't think I can be a professional at it, but probably because, you know, parents don't think that's a viable career option, but yeah. That, that, that I just wanted to cut in because that brings us to a question, what, which is what is considered a viable option? And mm. I think like what you were saying, Kate, it's often a condition that we live the way that we do, whether that's like we feel the need to get a particular job or feel like you have to graduate at a particular time or like you have to get your driver's license at a particular age. There's certain mm. things that we do that are not necessarily because of our own will, our own uh, voluntary action, our own need, but rather the condition that we live in. Um, and I think this is, it's a really interesting question about what can we consider a viable option? I suppose there's obviously like a host of like practical and pragmatic responses to like, why not, why not be a pottery person? I don't know what you call it, a professional. Ceramicist. A ceramicist. <laughs> yeah. Why not be a ceramicist versus why not be, I don't know, like a lawyer, for example. Um, I guess like one is like financial one is like, I guess, I don't know, some other reasons, but then obviously there's probably like the philosophical questions, which is like, what, what, what is the profession and what should be your life's duty? Um, and this, I just want to touch on this really quickly. I just, I'm reading this book called how Proust can change your life. It's by Marcel. It's on the life of Marcel Proust by Elaine de Baton. He's like 
uh, I, I've read like all of his books. I know Kate probably heard me talk a lot about him, but he talks about his history is very interesting. He's a, for those who don't know, he's a literary writer and um, he grew up in a, in a family where his father was a very well-renowned doctor and his father came out with like, I guess the first medical self-help book where he showed women how to do certain exercises to help their back age. Like this is like a, about a century ago. Anyways, his father was really well-renowned and everyone loved him. However, Proust, Marcel Proust, his son, um, he was not interested in anything that you would consider conventional career. He wasn't, he tried to be a, a lawyer, but he didn't like that. He tried to be a doctor. He didn't like that. And he just wanted to read every day. And that's all he wanted to do. And I think those are quoted saying, only if I could dedicate the amount of hours I dedicate to my books, to what my father does to his profession, something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. But it's really interesting because these ideas are things that have been brought up uh, even a century ago. And I'm sure even uh, way before that, but I guess I just wanted to comment that that these are very difficult questions, and um, it's worth maybe having a discussion like that. I also see that this could be thought of from an economic standpoint. So you kind of brought about socially what's accepted and not, and what one we're conditioned to believe that this can be a career or a profession, and this cannot, and it must just be some kind of a hobby or passion that you are an amateur at, right? And then there's the philosophical aspects of it that you mentioned, Xavier. But then there's also the economic aspects of it. And then this is like the try, trying to like see a, take a more transdisciplinary view on things, which is that I believe that our economic systems is, is created on a sort of value system that is not valuing some of the things that uh, could be objectively valuable to society, but our economic system do just doesn't take it into account. And so those become non-viable options, right? Like maybe uh, starting an NGO or nonprofit, at least what my, in my culture, they say like, or, or uh, on the, in my family, they say that, oh, maybe that, that's probably not the best way to go because it's not such a secure job. Uh, you're going to end up probably be, being a very poor person. Whereas the job actually is doing a lot of good to society, but our economic system doesn't reward that. Whereas there's careers like banking and finance, which are great, but then there's a lot of malicious things that happen, which may not actually objectively uh, contribute to society where, where it might actually cause more damage. And yet they, they end up having much more monetary rewards compared to the people who are probably doing much better for society. So it's just like a question of economics and our, um, the system that we have that don't allow it to do so. And I have kind of gone on a very uh, optimistic side of this rather than pragmatic um, on, on trying to create an economic system that's so data-driven that it is able to account for the true cost or benefit to the, the, the entire system or of our planet or our society or whatever. And so if I do good, I will automatically be rewarded for that true good I did. And if I did something objectively bad, as, as an economist would say, the truth of the matter, then I would, it would cost me to do that. So I'm curious to know your take on this, because I know Xavier, Xavier was telling me you have this like kind of very practical approach towards things. And you, you like one of the things he said, you're into is optimism versus pessimism. So how, how do you see this, this interaction of the economic system and this idealistic way of looking at it? I think, uh, I think metrics and um, sort of the reward system that you're talking about is, is very, uh, as you mentioned, ideal and optimistic. But I think because we're inherently um, 
subjective people choosing what would be higher priority or um, rewarded greater points well, could never be agreed upon. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're talking about professions that aren't seen as uh, desirable, something like teachers or nursing that are paid um, considerably less than banking institution and yet they make our society function as, as well as it does. And so, you know, I think, I think of the econ economist's argument about, you well, you know, bankers make the world go round. They make our economy um, stimulated and a good economy means uh, a successful Australia or a successful country. And so, you know, from that perspective, the banker would be very highly rewarded under your point system. But then someone else might say, well, the teacher is actually educating our, our students, our future, um, and so they should get more points. And so I think there will always be this um, debate about who should have more points um, and whose career is more noble if we, if we change. And so I do agree that there is, that, the, that society hasn't valued them properly, but I worry that with this, um, very noble goal of recalibrating all the professions, there would be very difficult to get some sort of uniformity of agreement. Um, do I think, do I think it's possible? Um, I don't know. I, I think as Xavier probably mentioned, I'm quite cynical. <laughs> um, I do, I do try and look at the positive, but I, I am a bit pessimistic and I think we are globally seeing the decline in unions um, and something like teachers and nurses and builders, all those all the, the influence of those unions, at least in Australia particularly, are, 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 are decreasing. And so when there isn't that pushback, the, the, the organic pushback between how we value jobs and then the representatives of the jobs that aren't valued pushing back and saying we uh, deserve more, if the voices that represent those jobs that aren't valued is decreasing, then we're just gonna see a trend where the jobs that are valued continue to be valued and the jobs that aren't valued continue to not be valued. And so I don't know if that is the tangent that you wanted to go down, but I think despite your optimism, I think it's actually going the other way. I think we're, we're seeing a, a, a division in, 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 in the value of the jobs. I mean, perhaps with COVID, we're gonna probably value our health workers a little bit more, but yeah, is it gonna be enough? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I see this as like a, a, um a kind of a utilitarian direction, which is like, I mean, going back to Jeremy Bentham, the idea of what carries more utility. And I think his argument is, is that you can distinguish between what is obviously, I mean, you not, you can distinguish, but it is, uh, you just rank, I guess, what is more pleasurable versus what causes more pain. And then I think, I think maybe a couple decades later or so, um, I forget, I forget the name. Anyways, the guy that came after Jeremy Bentham, um, he was the next utilitarian. I think it's John Mills. He said that you can actually, despite there being a difference um, in, I guess, what causes greater pleasure and what causes greater pain, you can at least rank them. So um, there's this there's this lecture series that Harvard does by this I get by this philosopher called Michael Sandel, and he talks about uh, he gives the example of The Simpsons versus Shakespeare, 
and what student and what you would prefer to watch. And they were saying how, obviously, like as a as a, a Benthian utilitarian, you would say, well, a Simpsons is like causes greater pleasure versus Shakespeare. But then I think John Mills would say, well, yes, I guess in a general sense, it causes greater pleasure. But what is the highest pleasure? And he would say that actually Shakespeare, most people would agree is the greater thing to go to. And I think it's very hard to, like you were saying, Kate, to really understand and try to distinguish because obviously subjectively speaking, everyone values everything differently. And I think there's, there's a couple of economists that are dealing with that, like Mariana Mazzucuto, I think, in her book, Value of Everything. Um, but I just wanted to finish this comment with a quote I thought was, I, I, th- I really like it's inside every pessimist, there's a disappointed idealist. This is, that's, a, that's a quote I really like, but... Um, yeah, I'm a disappointed idealist. <laughs> but yeah, so, but that sparks um, change, you know. Yes, I'm incentivized to change. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So to that point, I'm curious to know more of uh, what does that disappointed idealist believe is the way to change or bring about a sort of utopian society? Oh, good question. Um, what is effective change? I think. I think it does start from the root level um, at the bottom of the tree and, and works its way up. But I think as well, it really does need to see the change makers taking note because I think it's all very well to have um, big protests and big movements, but when it's actually the people that are making the legislation and the reform and it's the people that are making the commercial decisions about what to invest in, is it coal or, or solar, you know, they need to be on board as well. And so I think to create change, you need to, you need to have the, the masses on board. I agree. Um, but the masses are always ahead of the, of the decision makers. Uh, I think we've seen that in history as well. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the decision makers always dig in their heels um, and it, it takes a lot for them to be willing to change the status quo. So I think for me, uh, where I see the change that that the the, the coming over the the apex would be the the decision makers making the change whether that is you know providing them with the economical argument or whether it is putting a considerable political pressure on them um, but yeah I think that's really what. I mean, we could go through multiple examples, whether it be um, uh, Indigenous recognition in Australia or it could be um, environmental uh, and climate change. You know, the, the numbers are there population wise, but the decision makers are still digging their feet in. And so I think that's really where change happens is, is when it's finally demonstrated in, in the democratic way or the commercial way. It's very interesting you bring up this idea of uh, kind of the decision makers, which is basically the leaders of our country, the policy makers mm. of a state that that kind of bring about the change, right? And so I, I was recently doing uh, writing a paper on this matter as well of, of climate change in Nepal and how air pollution is so bad uh, because taking a systems view at it, the leverage point I found or the core of the problem was in the political system where they're having a, this political crisis and mm. the leaders are just not doing what they should be doing. And they're very, very uh, close minded in the way they're doing it. And corruption is a big problem and, and all these different things. So 
it brought me to this idea of um, of kind of like different systems of organizing society or or systems of governance that even Plato talks about. And I recently read excerpts of the Republic that Plato wrote, and he speaks about these four different types of structures. And what I hear you saying somewhere, Kate, is that we must have decision makers or leaders or politicians um, that are so wise and uh, kind of adaptive in a way where they're making decisions for the collective good, for the long-term good. And that would mean that they're sort of aristocrats that Plato described to be uh, motivated by ideas of wisdom and truth and, and justice and morality rather than uh, other systems like oligarchies where or, or tyrannies, I think. No, sorry. Uh, democracies, which is being uh, motivated by, by honor, which after that turns into a sort of oligarchy, which is motivated by, by money and power. And then that turns into democracy, which is kind of by the people. And then finally to tyranny. So I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I'm curious to know both your thoughts on if the leaders were to, if the change was in the leaders' hands, in the politicians' hands, then what kind of a political structure or system uh, should we hope to create in a sort of utopia? Mm. I can go first if you like. Yeah, okay. go for it, um, So the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, I, I think the idea of change, there's, I, th I think change is romanticized in some way. So what I mean by that is that if you are I mean, taking a business perspective, if you are a manager of a new company or like a CEO of a new company, you often think, what can I change? What change can I embody? When change ne doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily encompass a good result or doesn't necessarily encompass a, a good cause because sometimes things do not need to be changed. I think that's where maybe our individual ego gets involved and we feel like we have to change something in, in order to show that we have made tangible uh, progress in the role. Um, but I guess that aside, um, a few ideas come to mind. So um, the author Roman Krasnick in his book, The Good Ancestor, he actually tackles this problem where the book, essentially the thesis is that we have to be like more future oriented. That's, that's uh, like the abstract. And in one of the chapters he talks, I think it's called democratic futures. And he, he posits four separate uh, democratics or four different political systems that we can embody to help us enact change. And so one of them that comes to mind is called guardians of the future, where you set up institutions in the political system that I just designated to represent the future. And so you can have like a future, uh, what if, what is, like a, a futures politician that represents uh, the generations ahead or the next 30 years. And it's actually been implemented, I think in Wales and, or Scotland, one of those countries, they've implemented a, a futures uh, officer who they essentially review um, political policies based on their their future orientation and then they give feedback to our political uh, i guess the general political institutions that have created those principles and then there's like other ones so there's like um intergenerational rights which is i guess touches on maybe a more legal human rights perspective which talks about how um he talks he uses this term called tempus nullius which is the uh, which plays on this uh this uh, phrase that is used in australia which is called terra nullius which to give a bit of context is essentially when the English invaded Australia, they 
they invaded the country on the principle, international law principle of terra nullius, claiming that the land belonged to no one, similar to what Christopher Columbus and the, uh, the English did to America and so on and so forth. And he talks about how tempus nullius, essentially tempus meaning time, nullius meaning no one, he claims that the future belongs to no one. And because of that, we are able to violate the, the rights of the future generations by robbing them of their livelihood, by polluting, by um, doing all sorts of things. And so I think we can maybe even implement self-governing, I'm uh, not self-governing, intergenerational rights that, uh, that account for the lost generation or the generation that we cannot see, but is very tangibly going to be there in the future or may not be depending on, I guess, how, how the climate goes. I mean, maybe that's a dystopia versus utopia question. But uh, yeah, that's, a, that's my thoughts on, I guess, political systems and how we can embody change. Yeah, very interesting. I think that's um, really, 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 really good ideas, actually, ones I haven't heard of, but, you know, got to represent the inner cynic within me. Um, <laughs> I think it was very interesting, Shashi, saying about how, um, one of the four potential pol political pillars is the pursuit of knowledge. And I think we're currently seeing a massive, you know, science skepticism, um, particularly with vaccinations and COVID, um, even political skepticism. We're seeing a massive questioning of authority at the moment, um, questioning the legitimacy. And in fact, it is it. It's very interesting that we have just talked about the uh, concept of amateur and professor, professional. Um, but yeah, so I think it, uh, personally, uh, as it is one of my goals in life, the pursuit of knowledge. Um, but I think it is massively against the trend of the way that the world is going at the moment. And so I think whilst it might be an ideal uh, approach to govern the world according to what knowledge indicates as the best approach for the most parties or most stakeholders. I think it, it, it really isn't, isn't happening. And I think that's quite sad. So I think really when uh, this concept of the guardians of the future, as you were just mentioning, Xavier, and, and, and intergenerational rights, to me, they're no brainers. But I think just to comment on, on the political climate of the world and this increase in nationalism and skepticism, I think it really is going to buck the trend um, because right now we're seeing policies based on right here, right now, um, very uh, individual, individualistic mindset. And so that's why I think when you last brought up in one of our previous conversations, Ava, about the good ancestor, and we're talking about this concept of guardians of the future, I think I said exactly this, whereas like people don't look to the future. It's not in our nature um, to think of think of the future generations it's very counterintuitive especially perhaps you know you could call upon the book of sapiens and you know our desire to live here and right now and just immediate gratification or whatever the case may be but it's very unhuman i think to 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 look that to look that far forward um and so I think it would take a lot to really change that mindset and make people understand why you are making these decisions for the long term. I think, you know, back in the Romans and the Greeks, of course, the pursuit of knowledge um, was so desired because there was such little knowledge to begin with. But now that we feel like the knowledge is at our fingertips and that I can have a comment on what vaccine I think is the best one for my body without having any medical degree, um, you know, I think it's, 
it's 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 completely different mindset so to change that would be would take a very strong person or a few years perhaps so just to clarify one thing mm. you said that there's this like skepticism in people and you brought up this uh, uh, this example of questioning the vaccine mm. are you referring to this this new sort of culture as a sort of anti intellectual culture is that what yeah, you're referring to definitely okay and so in that are you seeing that um specifically with the vaccine i find it very interesting what makes you say that questioning the the truth about the vaccine or its effects is anti intellectual and w- what is the implication of that of just anti intellectualism mm. well i think i should first note that i myself am not anti intellectualism um but i think why why questioning the vaccine is anti intellectualism is because if you pair it all back the vaccine is produced by uh scientists with years of research and um precedent of studies that they have built upon the backs of that to generate a possible vaccine to address the coronavirus um and to question that without without any understanding of all the work that has gone behind it and the 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 professionalism that that they're speaking to when they say that this is the best approach to the coronavirus is that questioning of intellectualism it's that question of you know i don't trust you or i don't think you know what is best for me as a person despite the 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 years and the the breadth of knowledge that they have why do i think there's this increase in skepticism i think people are feeling particularly empowered with the internet and the knowledge that they have um there could be probably a lot of other reasons that maybe you guys have opinions on but how can we get around that i don't know i think we need to build some legitimacy i think when our political figureheads i mean you could throw in donald trump here but when he himself questions the chief scientist of america that immediately undermines that entire man and his profession and and everything that he then says so i think it, i think it, we we need to rebuild that sense of legitimacy um in in those institutions but then again part of me is like well we need to challenge the institutions so <laughs> i don't know perhaps i'm what arguing against myself this whole idea of anti intellectualism to me it sounds like not questioning authority is act anti-intellectualism to me the idea of intellectualism somewhere is to question is to uh, be in pursuit of truth in a way where you're always speculating you're always trusting in a way but yet skeptic i mean i completely i'm a believer in science and science has a lot of value but i also somewhere this is my personal belief there is limitations in the scientific methodology and that just using one person who says they they have done tons of research and they've they know the truth or they're claiming to be the arbiters of the truth and of some sort i just become very skeptic of that i'm the first person i think i i want to question these people and it's not just as a kind of fuck you to them but more like well it's more of a philosophical take that's what socrates was hated for right like in his book the apology or well in plato's book the apology it it's about how socrates was at his trial and he was put on trial because of his kind of 
um, uh, acts of questioning everything. He was going to politicians, he was going to poets, he was whoever said they were in a position of authority and know what they were talking about. He said, okay, well, I'm, if you do great, you probably do because I don't. And I'd like to know what you know. And then he asked them such questions that made them think in ways that um, I believe they kind of lost it. They were like, well, I don't know what you're really saying and I don't have the answer. They didn't know what they claimed they knew essentially. So the, my point is that isn't that actually the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and truth and intellectuality rather than just uh, surrendering to whatever the, the leader says is, is the truth and we must accept it. Do you see what I'm saying? I think there's a distinction though. So I think I there's questioning for the sake of questioning or to antagonize or to undermine, which I think a lot of people do, particularly on when they were trying to have a debate, but they're actually just seeking to embarrass or undermine the professional. And then there's seeking knowledge because you, you in your heart of hearts want to know. And I think that's really where like these sorts of philosophical, philosophical debates come in is that we're in this second column where we are seeking answers to find the answer or to understand what they're coming from. We're not, we don't have any other ulterior motives. It's just for the pursuit of knowledge. And I think that's really where Socrates was coming from. But in this intellectual skepticism, I don't think people's objectives are as noble. I think it is, I want to undermine this person because I'm anti-authority. I want to embarrass this person um, because they go against my ulterior motives to do X, Y, and Z. So I think if, if they're in this first camp, uh, sorry, the second camp of pursuit of knowledge, then I think go ahead, question away, seek those answers. But when they're in front of you and there's evidence and there's multiple people saying the same thing and there's a uniform approach and you yourself aren't actually bothered to read the 100 page document phd thesis or whatever it is saying you know this virus strain responds best to this if you're not even bothered to do that you're simply questioning for the sake of questioning and to disrupt and agitate the political security of the system then i don't know i i don't know if i like that first camp <laughs> yeah this kind of brings up this brings up the idea of i guess I'm hesitant to use this word. I guess I'll just say it. so. Uh, mens rea. So in, in Latin, I guess the 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 intent or like the mental element. Um, Kate can probably talk about this, given you're a law graduate. But I feel that in the pursuit of philosophical discussion and philosophical curiosity, curiosity, there is a need to have some sort of intent that is um, a good faith actor, I suppose, um, versus a bad faith actor. Um, and I, that also brings up the question of what can be considered a good faith actor. But I think one of the one of the one of the good signs would be is that one is obviously curious to find what is the best solution and figuring out objectively speaking what is the best way to approach a problem. But I also think as well um, for those who maybe don't act in who act in bad faith or maybe just don't act in the in the way that is conducive to a good philosopher i guess in terms of like asking questions so in terms of like vaccinations like those who would question the vaccinations without actually having any prior knowledge i think also there's the people that have 
ask that ask those questions, they may come from a background where they've been conditioned or their experiences inform their reality. And so what they're experiencing on a day to day has led them to ask the question, why should I believe you? Like, how do I know the government is not like made up of lizards and the Illuminati? Like those experiences inform them to ask those questions, which in I guess brings us to a question, how do we ask good philosophical questions and how do we make a, make a, I guess an arena or an assembly where people can come together and have good philosophical questions and debate and discourse? How do we do that on such a macro level? So I suppose like uh, to answer my own question just immediately, one way is to do this, but a, a question to both of you, how can we facilitate intellectual discourse that is genuine on a mass scale to discuss things like vaccinations or to discuss things like how to reform the political system what are your thoughts um well i think it's worth noting that a lot of conspiracy theories arise out of instability or uh, dissatisfaction so with 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 lower class Americans questioning, you know, is there this is Donald Trump our savior, and is he going to address all the lizards in 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 the White House? That comes from a place not because they are automatically questioning authority, but it's because they're not happy with the situation that they're in. So there's a, a level of instability and dissatisfaction that is fueling the need for them to get answers in other ways. They're not satisfied with the messaging that they're receiving. They're not trusting of the uh, decision makers because they've done nothing for them. And so really, in my opinion, a lot of uh, conspiracy theories and, um, you know, extreme uh, opinions come from that lack of centralized, secure and um, stable uh, rhetoric and communication from government. Oh, sorry. Give me one second. Just had a delivery of plums. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I think, um, I think that's the first thing I would mention is, is in order to create a, an arena where, where we can address this misinformation, I think the first thing that we need to look at is, you know, who are these people that are um, susceptible to this misinformation? And often you'll find it is uneducated or low socioeconomic or disenfranchised people. And so if we're addressing those three areas, people are less likely to clutch onto extreme attitudes because they are being, their basic needs are being serviced. So I think that's the first thing I'd mention. And then I think the second thing, how do we create an arena for philosophical debate? I think we need to teach people how to do it because I genuinely think people don't really know how to develop an opinion, how to articulate an opinion and how to understand someone else's and respond appropriately. I think myself, I'm able to do it, not from my own uh, individual research, but from high school debating. Uh, I'll be honest, like the ability to be able to argue either side. I think I remember like the first question I ever got in like year five debating was, you know, should cigarettes be illegal? And something that I would have already had an opinion on as a seven year old, I'm not even sure what year, how old I was in year five, but however old I was, uh, you know, I would have already had an opinion there, or even if I didn't, the fact that you flip a coin and get told if you're affirmative or negative, you have to then 
jump into action, come up with your arguments, and then write rebuttals to the opposition. And so that thinking of being not attached to an idea and that flip a coin and you could be on either side, that lack of a, like that detachment from a, a opinion, but the ability to argue either side, I think is, is invaluable. And it's not really taught in schools unless you proactively seek out the debating team. Um, so yeah, I think those are the, those are the two points I'd say. So we just to quickly summarize, because there's a lot of things you said, I want to like put it down to as short as possible. The first thing is I wrote down somewhere to create a centralized system of um, communicating and governance or, or rhetoric where we're trying to like educate, empower, and I'm just putting my own words, but correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, is that something that you meant in the first Well, part? I don't know if it needs to be created, but it's, we've already got these systems of democracy, but it's, it's about making sure that they're actually addressing the needs of the disenfranchised. So um, if you think of who, I mean, let's, we don't have to get political, but if we think of people who are subscribing to the anti-vax movement, let's say, a lot of them have had poor experiences in with with medical assistance, right? And so in that case, instead of thinking, okay, well, they're unsalvageable, that we've lost them, maybe it's about looking, okay, well, what happened in the medical space that had caused them to take this attitude? And is that a need that we need to address? So it's about addressing their inherent distrust, whether it be for authority, because they have their past three generations have lived below the poverty line. And so they don't trust authority because they've done nothing for them. Or was it a previous experience that went poorly? And so when I say stability, I, I mean, you know, is our existing system that we could say could be neutral, is that servicing the basic needs of, 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 of the majority? That's so, the possibility. Okay. You, you brought up this thing with vaccines and how people... Very topical. <laughs> have this anti-vaccine uh, mindset how we must deal with them are you willing to play can i challenge you and are you willing mm -hmm. to play a game with me are you going to ask me to play devil's advocate so i i am a person let's say I'm, I'm to tell you that i don't i would not take the vaccine change my mind change your mind or well, the first thing i would ask you is is what are you what is your apprehension towards the vaccine well i believe that the human body has the ability to fight a lot of these problems on its own. So I think there's more holistic ways. I believe there's uh, more healthy ways for me as an individual to fight this virus. And my, this is the way I've been brought up or uh, the culture that I have been brought up in. And well, not entirely, but my mom has never barely given me any vaccines. She gave me the most minimal amount. I've never taken any antibiotics or medicines in my life. Yet I'm a very healthy person. I actually had asthma as a child, but uh, without any antibiotic medicines, I was able to get over it. And you might ask, like, how? Uh, the answer is that it was all homeopathy. And you might, there's a lot of skeptics of it. I'm not sure if you've heard of homeopathy, but uh, the skeptics say that it's a placebo. Well, it still worked. I'm, every time I get sick, I just take those sweet pills that I don't know what they do, but they fix me. And my doctor also told me that I, I, I don't think you need to take the, the vaccine. I think you'll be fine. Even if you get it, you will be able to do it. I mean, I think it's more, more the older people who don't have the ability to fight it or adapt their body in a way to do it uh, who really need it. And uh, mind you, these doctors are professionals. They're not 
anti-vaccine people who are just doing this. They are committed towards the pursuit of knowledge, wisdom, and truth and coming up with holistic ways of addressing problems of humanity. So how, how, that, that's my response. You've raised that. a few points there. I think the first thing I would mention is I'd be curious, and obviously you don't have to role play this if you don't want to, but I'd be curious to understand what you were basing your opinion on. Um, because I would posit that there are dozens of international science teams, not just associated with one democracy or one dictator or one political agenda, all working towards and collaborating on one or two key vaccines. And so there is this multinational approach towards this global issue. And so never before have we seen such collaboration, such desire and such such quantity of individual scientists supporting the one method of addressing the situation. The second thing I would probably mention was that um, even your, if you're skeptical of um, the scientists, even your own naturopathy would have their own agenda because they might say, you know, oh, you know, you don't, no, you don't need a, uh, uh, you don't need injections, you don't need the flu shot, you don't need this and that. But it's also their objective to say that because that is their business. It, 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 their business is to be against modern and contemporary medicine. That is how they differentiate themselves. So if suddenly your, your local doctors, your local, local naturopath said, oh, well, actually, you should take the vaccine, that would be very counter brand. So <laughs> I, think, I think, of course, they're not saying that. Uh, and then finally, I think it's really worth noting that with vaccines, unlike your individual perspective, they imp impact not just yourself. And that's, I think that's really one of the key messages that we're seeing in the debate as well. It's okay, you yourself might think that you are fine, but then you are a carrier and then you will spread it to others. And so I would challenge you from an ethical perspective that is that selfishness worthwhile risking other people's lives? And I'd, I'd hit home with that one. <laughs> I think we should uh, just. I think we should just put a disclaimer right at the beginning of this. Like this is a hypothetical situation before. Um, yeah, um, we we're just talking about cancel culture and things being taken out of context. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> we hope that doesn't happen. But this is very interesting. So I'm definitely not anti-vaccine, mm. but I am. I'm still. I see what you're saying. It's like their business, they're playing a brand in order to, to, do, to go about their business. I agree with that, but also disagree because they're not actually trying to sell me anything. They're saying your body can take care of it if you take care of yourself. So I agree ethically, uh, the utilitarian thing would be where everyone is, is fine and um, we, we don't become carriers of this and, and spread it around 100%. But I also believe that vaccines are kind of like this uh, short-term solution, or maybe it's not that short-term, but what I mean is like, just like how there's, <clears throat> how there's acorns versus marshmallows that me and Xavier discussed in our first podcast, there's also uh, vitamins versus antibiotics, which is vitamins are things that you do to stay healthy so that you don't actually have to go through this problem of taking these vaccines or antibiotics or, or things like that to like cover this wound up. But you in itself are, healthy from before so that you never get to this problem. I think somewhere I take, I, I, I'm a little bit like uh, not a fan of this vaccine because I believe that 
we should never have got to this stage where we have to develop a sort of vaccine to, to combat this. I think this disease that we have is a reflection of not just how poor our, our I don't know what system, I mean, it's all the systems, our economic, our political, our education. There's, it's, it's broken in a way where this, this kind of imbalance or this kind of chaos had to come about to bring about a sort of change. But if we had systems in society that were kind of like vitamins that kept people uh, healthy from before, that allowed people to make better decisions, to be more free, uh, to be in the pursuit of the truth, then I believe that we would not need to come to the situation where we're now, we need to develop vaccines to cover up this thing. But I, I completely agree. This is amazing how people are coming together, collaborating, try to unitize uh, their knowledge, their research to, to do something greater for humanity. So it's like, I see I what you're like, saying. There's a the challenge time. with your reasoning. So I do agree in an, in an ideal world, and maybe this is the difference between a skeptic and a, an idealist, or I'm, I'm pointing to you on my right because that's where you are on my screen, but, um, but it penalizes those that are already there. So sure, if we had these systems in place, that would be great. But to now say, I'm not going to take the va vaccine because we should have done a better job historically means that all those low socioeconomic people, all those people who have maybe obesity or um, existing medical conditions or anything that predisposes them to more likely dying from COVID, we're penalizing them because we're saying, well, you should have popped some vitamins. And so, yes, it is an indictment on our society that we let it get this bad, but to not, to say well, too bad, so sad, survival of the fittest means that all those people will perish. And that is a penalty that is so grave. And the fact that we have modern medicine that will address this, sure, I do agree that it shouldn't have gotten to this stage. And, but, but the, you know, you could blame capitalism, you could blame democracy even, but the fact that there are these people who not by necessarily their own decisions are in these uh, dire circumstances, I don't think it's just that they that they be penalized for that. What do you yeah. think, Xavier? <laughs> yeah, no, this I think I see some I see a bit of a tension. So I see what you're saying, Shashwan, and I see what you're saying, Kate. So I, I just to paraphrase everything, just to make sure I understand. So Shash, what you're essentially saying that the reason that you feel resistant to the idea of a vaccine of a COVID vaccine is because the systems that are in place were at a sub suboptimal point where it led to the collapse or it led to uh, events that were not ideal and so the so the current circumstances surrounding um covid and everything are essentially out of control and this could have been resolved through um better systems and then kate you're saying that um obviously we can point the finger at many things um obviously it could be like capitalists like why do we value certain things why can't we just make vaccines free why or like some other some other issues that we can point out like you know why is our political figures incompetent um etc etc i see here a i think a point of reconciliation which is similar to what we were saying before to bring it back to the initial point of a safe space i think because we have a tendency to assign blame to things just because it's human nature um, I think what what you're doing, Sashwa, um, not specific, not to put you on to, to to roast you or anything. I think by saying that this is the problem, this is 
this should have been fixed. We are being we are being disingenuous to our earlier claim of being like of of being um, accepting of the current circumstances and figuring out processes to fix them, as opposed to blaming them and then making them feel bad. So, like if we look at this in like a like a a much narrower scope, like in a classroom, if someone misspells cat, you don't say you're an idiot. How come you didn't do that? You have to facilitate that safe space for learning. And I think COVID and like the events that led after that is this is an opportunity for us to really um, grab, I guess, our institutions by the neck and be like, look, this is happening. How can we improve these things? This is not to say that you're that because of you, the political system or you, the education system or you, the medical system, you are to blame, but it's to figure out how can we make things better? How do we refine the processes that help us lead to more optimal outcomes or outcomes that lead us to uh, attain higher knowledge and attain greater knowledge and attain just a better understanding of how things work. So I, I just wanted to comment on that, but I, this brings me to a question I think uh, is I would really like to know from UK and I don't know Shashwit mentioned his idea before um, something that we like to do. Obviously the podcast is called Utopias Now. Um, and so we like to dream a lot. We like to think what could, how could things be done better? Um, but coming from, I guess, a self-proclaimed uh, pessimist or a cynic, I'd be very interested to see, what your th thoughts were on in a utopia. And this could be a single idea. It could be reforming the educational system or it could be very big picture. But what were your thoughts on uh, a utopian idea or a utopian world that you would like to see? As in what that would look like? Yeah, yeah. And it could be anything. It could be a very minor, like a minor scale or macro scale. And as idealistic or pessimistic as you'd like. Well, the word utopia in and of itself is an optimistic word. So that'll be challenging for me to apply my pessimism there. But um, yeah. Mm. I think in a utopia, for me, it would look like basic human rights served. So I think, you know, we've had the UN Declaration of Human Rights for a number of decades now, but a lot of them still have not been addressed. Um, I see even in my own suburb, homeless people, I see children wagging school, I see people not being able to feed themselves or have shelter. And so I think maybe that's even a very basic level of utopia because it's not even that optimistic, but I'd like to see even a country as Australia considered first world, just basic human rights of our own citizens met. Um, and then of course, extending that to the globe. But I think, yeah, I think it would be really hard for me to go much more beyond that when even that base level of rights are still not met. Um, so maybe I have managed to make that a little bit pessimistic, but as once, once those rights are met, ask me again and I will shoot for the stars. <laughs> so a quick follow-up I have on this is, this is quite interesting. You, you speak about human rights and it connects to the story that uh, you kind of mentioned that you're doing law 
as as a profession, right? So uh, I'm curious to know what was it that motivated you to do law and how that connects to this, your, your perception of a utopia or trying to like bring about this uh, basic human rights that serve society or is a basis of creating a utopia? Mm. It's a good question. I'm actually not following the law career pursuit. I've finished my law degree. Uh, I have yet to receive a piece of paper, but I have finished uh, all my subjects and assignments. Um, why I studied law, I think I'm uh, you know, gen generally interested in the ability to argue both sides, the pursuit of, of legal knowledge. I think you know, law is a real bedrock of our society. And so I find it inherently interesting. Um, why human rights? Well, interestingly enough, when studying international law and human rights in my law degree, I actually became incredibly disenfranchised and more cynical because I, I find it so disheartening and in, 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 from an individual level, the ability to make change from a human rights lawyer perspective was, is, is at least in my opinion, very unsatisfactory to myself. I know a lot of more noble, more intelligent, um, more aspirational people can commit their lives to humanitarian law, whether that be prosecuting in the Rwandan genocide, or perhaps it is in diplomacy. But I don't know, I, I found it really, really hard to see the kinds of tangible change that I, I need as an individual, the self-satisfaction from. So I did, I did put that on the back burner and, and I'm about to start entering in the consulting profession into business and strategy um, because I, I've recently sort of realized that a lot of real change is coming from commercial um, or from the business side of things. So as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, our politicians and our decision makers are digging in their heels, but things like um, marriage equality, the environment, um, indigenous recognition, a lot of our big corporate companies are actually making those decisions years in advance, if not decades in advance to the governments uh, with which countries they reside. So whether it is my lifelong profession, I do question, um, but I do think that the tools that I'll get um, and the ability to understand and problem solve that I do get from consulting, I aspire and hope will help me be able to solve these problems because right now, they're too big for me. Um, and I already have this question of whether or not, you know, is one woman enough? Um, but I'd like to think that with a few years in industry, perhaps I might have at least some idea of an approach. It's quite interesting you, you say consulting because actually even I'm very interested in it and I know even Xavier is. And I like the mindset that consultants have to, to kind of use these frameworks and, and uh, techniques and tools that, that can be used of systematically thinking about stuff and approaching things to solve problems that we have in society that are quite complex. And I also uh, really resonated with what you said that our corporations do have a lot of power to bring about change as well. And so I'm curious to know whether you see a connection between corporations and how consulting helps corporations grow and make better decisions essentially uh, and how that can impact this sort of becoming of utopia or this sort of bringing about a better system of, of human rights or fulfilling these basic social needs that you kind of mentioned just before do you see a bridge between these two 
and how law plays a role in that, I guess. Well, I think the bridge is not simply an arc. I think the bridge is some sort of spiral, sort of nebulous floating thing. Um, but I think with corporate, I think uh, it's, it's undeniable that the lobbying effects that corporate has on government is undeniable. Um, and the fact that when, I think a lot of the time, decision makers in the governmental sense are very apprehensive and, and need a lot of uh, assurance that this is the right decision before they make a decision. But by seeing lots of uh, established corporations around them making similar decisions, that is uh, affirmation that that is the right decision to make. And so I think perhaps it's a long bow to draw, but by having decisions, setting the example and creating the culture that you want to see in the world, that will then have flow on effects and, and, and subsequently influence those decision makers. But it can even be on a small, uh, a small scale. I mean, even something like uh, gender. I've worked in a, a few workplaces where they have predominantly been female um, and seeing women in power and in leadership in government, uh, in, in corporate, that is slowly but surely and incrementally being seeping, seep, seeping into government as well. And so it's not fast, it can be faster. It's not as a uh, bang, big bang kind of ramification, but I think it, it, it's, it's, it's something. <laughs> Just a question I th wanted to ask um, in regards to companies and businesses and more maybe commercial means of production leading the way on maybe maybe some social issues, environmental issues. Um, the, obviously, there's a number of examples where this has not been the case, where companies have violated the trust or maybe violated um, uh, violated the the basic and fundamental rights of people. So for example, in Australia, um, obviously we have an indigenous population here. There was recently a mine, um, a mining company called Rio Tinto International Mining Company, and they blew up a cave. And I believe the cave had- Dukin Gorge? Yeah, it was in central Australia and it had remnants that I think were around 60,000 years old. And this was blown up purportedly um, to build a new mine. And obviously this is just one example. There's obviously so many other examples like the GFC um, and things of these sorts. Do you think that in, do you think that companies and maybe commercial means of going forward and progressing, although they may do it quicker, um, the fact that they are profit driven undermines their, undermines their authenticity and their authority to be, um, to be change makers or are they just being change makers for the sake of saving their bottom line? Um, I think there will always be that commerciality with all, if not most decisions, but I think where it's happening is that companies, yes, are financial institutions, but they also have shareholders, at least the big ones and shareholders are made up of the populace. Um, and we're seeing things with, uh, for example, there was a case, um, even in the Rio Tinto example, but I'm also thinking of 
um, a sexual harassment case in AMP Bank. And in that case as well, the shareholders and even the board put a lot of pressure on making the change to address the problem um, because it didn't fit the status quo, it did not meet the pub test. And so we're seeing that it's its own design of this shareholder who can put on pressure on the C-suite of decision makers to reflect and have company decisions that reflect what they want to see, which is making real change. And interestingly, in both of those examples, whilst commercially, commercially keeping that um, male executive in, in the company was in their commercial interest because he was raking it in. But the, they did not, the, 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 the board and shareholders did not see that as meeting the company values just as with the, the Rio Tinto and the Gorge. Um, it wasn't meeting the company values, despite it, probably gonna be, despite it probably going to benefit the company enormously, we're seeing that that is not the only thing that shareholders are valuing. And so, yes, commercially designed, but now we're seeing that work against them. So I think, I think with the people power and the tides changing, I think it, it could work, but yes, on a micro level, and in private and small to medium companies, it will be harder. Um, but I think I think it is changing. I'd like to add to this question and say that uh, more pragmatically thinking, as in like there are these idealist goals, right? That of this future of this utopia. But if we were to take and we, as in not the entire society, because that is also ideal, as in three people talking about what society should do is not going to actually change what society does. But more pragmatically, what is something that people like you and me or all of us here can do uh, at this stage of our lives? I mean, we're just right in college or just out of college, young professionals. What do you believe we can do at this point practically to to kind of facilitate or enable this kind of change we want or the utopia that we're seeking? Or I don't know. Well, that's an assumption. I, I'm not saying you're seeking a utopia, but basically to bring about this change. <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm a strong believer of being involved in politics to some extent, whether that's your local government or your state government. Um, but I do strongly believe in being engaged with it in some respect, whether that is simply being uh, kept abreast of what is happening or if it is actually engaging in um, those, uh, at least in Sydney, I've got City of Sydney Council, they often have um, lots of mechanisms in which you can get in contact in person pre-COVID, but also um, online and, and in other ways. And so I think really uh, not underestimating your ability to contribute and and um, to direct some change, whether that be even on a small thing about like cycle paths. I know my area is really um, picking up um, with a lot of uh, local residents advocating for cycle path. And so we're seeing a reduction in um, traffic, but we're also seeing an uptake in um, the number of people commuting to work via um, bicycles. So starting small and local, I think is a really great way. And, but also having these conversations, I think um, even with, uh, I, I wouldn't advise it online because I think you'll never change anyone's opinion online um, because of the screen, like we just said before. Uh, I mean, I can never say never, but I think you are going to have much more success doing it in person. So that might be your family or your workplace. So if you hear someone saying something that you 
don't agree with or you think I should probably say something here, um, then do it in a respectful and, 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 and polite way. I know, um, I know a lot of my friends are combating uh, homophobia or racism in the workplace simply by um, politely inserting themselves in conversations and coming at it, whether they're disabling by banter or by um, proposing or saying perhaps that's a bit offensive. But even small things like that can really make a change and 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 change uh, a way of doing it. That's the that's the pessimist perspective. From a more greater uh, optimistic perspective, I think as we get into positions of power and positions of leadership, whether you're managing a team of three or a company of 200, I think it's up to you to not make simply decisions based on um, uh, what has done in the past. And I know Xavier did say, you know, don't change for the sake of changing, but I am a firm believer that there's always something to change. Um, nothing is ever done perfectly uh, or no team has ever managed the best or no um, I mean you could put efficiency in there you could put commerciality in there or you could put um, social justice in there you know is your company um, could some of your dividends be going to greater causes so if and when you find yourself in these positions where you can have a bit greater change more less on an individual perspective but perhaps on a company or if you're working in local government then or, or government generally, like make them stick your neck out a little bit and 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 change change that because I think that's really where the slightly bigger steps can be made. I think for I think all things considered, I think this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I just wanted to transition to say, see if there was any final thoughts um, in regards to this conversation, anything brought up, or even something to look forward to. Or other questions that uh, yeah. we can ponder upon for the yeah. future. Other questions. Well, I'd be curious to understand Xavier's aversion to change. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I think um, something that I, I don't know, there's always, there's always things that interest me. How, how I think something that um, always interests me in the concept of change is relationships. So uh, with change, there's always people involved. Um, you have to, uh, you know, you could take a Machiavelli approach and you have to manipulate and persuade people to want to change, or you can take them with you, um, or you have to plant the seed within them and let that grow and it could take time. So I think really having a consideration of um, the people element of change and, and the utopia, where does that fit in? I think that would be a very interesting discussion. And that in itself, I believe, is a sort of politics where you're influencing each other and uh, dealing with people that I, I completely agree with you. That's a very interesting topic. And uh, I would also love to have more conversations around this and the issues that come around with emotions, relationships, people, uh, in whether that's families or like mass scale societies, cultures, sociology. I mean, it goes into so many things, but mm, yeah. Even I, I identity would... within the change. Like, do I identify with that change or does it actually conflict with my identity? Mm, and what are the implications? How do we get this idea of legitimacy that you brought up as well and consensus so that we can actually have a society that's harmonious in some ways and can agree upon certain things to function. So I completely agree with what you said. 
this uh, I think this is a good place to wrap up and I think I'm, the, the quote that comes to mind is a quote from Socrates and it relates to um, safe spaces and it also relates to all these topics that we've talked about about establishing a, a community or like a group where you can discuss these sort of things which is the quote is education is the kindling of a flame and not the filling of a vessel which I think is a great way to encapsulate how we must um, arouse curiosity in order to be respectfully curious about how to challenge things and how to maybe change things or not change things depending on how you see it but um I think this has been great thank you for coming on by the way Kate no yeah, thank, thank you. you this is awesome good discussions have been had <laughs> thoughts will continue to develop in my brain long after this recording is over <laughs>